0: is Battlegrounds.
1: On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on Australia, a vital ally and partner of the United States. Our guest is former Ambassador Joe Hockey, who served as the Australian ambassador to the United States from 2016 to 2020. Prior to that appointment, Mr. Hockey served as Australian Treasurer from 2013 to 2015. Mr. Hockey spent more than 17 years in Parliament, where he served as Minister for several portfolios, including financial services, small business and tourism, human services and employment, and workplace relations. Before entering Parliament, Mr. Hockey was a banking and finance lawyer. Today, Mr. Hockey is the founding partner and president of the strategic advisory firm Bondi Partners. Australia is on the front line of rising tensions in the Asia-Pacific. Following the Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison's push for a World Health Organization investigation into the origin of COVID-19 in 2020, the Chinese Communist Party responded with menacing and punitive bans on a growing number of Australian exports. The bans drove a wedge between business and government and increased fears among Australian companies reliant on access to the China market. In contrast, China's demand for Australian iron ore has not abated and has kept trade relations alive between the two countries. At home, Australia faces the interconnected challenge of energy security and climate change. Despite import restrictions from China and domestic calls to move away from fossil fuels, Demand for Australian coal is undiminished. Australia's arid and highly variable climate and its propensity for massive bushfires make it difficult to balance coal's economic and energy security benefits with the need to reduce carbon emissions and slow climate change. The COVID pandemic put an end to Australia's 28-year run of positive GDP growth. But the Australian economy has returned to growth, in large part due to increased exports of its vast mineral resources and widespread government economic stimulus. However, the pandemic highlighted Australia's economic vulnerabilities. Closed borders and strict lockdowns kept Australia virtually COVID-free until the rise of highly contagious variants. But the restrictions exacerbated existing skills shortages across agriculture, construction, healthcare, and professional services. In September 2021, the Australia-UK-US, or AUKUS, Security Pact paved the way for Australia to acquire its first nuclear-powered submarines and new long-range strike capabilities for its Air Force, Navy, and Army. The deal has further increased tensions with China and complicated US and Australian relations with European allies. We welcome Mr. Hockey to discuss trade, economic recovery from the pandemic, energy security and climate change, and the need to compete in the face of a coercive Chinese Communist Party.
0: Ambassador Hockey, welcome to Battlegrounds. It was a privilege to work with you when you served as ambassador to the United States. It's great to see you again. Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, General H R. Great to be with you. Good to see you again, mate.
0: Hey, Joe, we're going we're to draw on your your vast experience to to help our, our our viewers understand better. You know the challenges and opportunities we're facing today, and of course, what's on a lot of people's minds are our security across the Indo Pacific, the role that China has there, and just in general, what do you view as the greatest threats to peace and security from an Australian slash American perspective? How do you think about about preserving peace and what the greatest threats are today?
2: Well, the best way to preserve peace is to have prosperity. And I think Beijing understands that, uh, as do most leaders, that uh, if, uh, to quote someone from history, if if the people's bellies are full, then they're happy. And if they're starving, they're unhappy. And that's very much the case in modern China. HR, I first went to China when I was 14 years of age. And it was a very, very different nation to what it is today. And I think Beijing is very acutely focused on the need to make sure uh, that uh, there is prosperity in China, as it is the case in Indonesia and India and a range of other nations. Because as you know better than most, uh, social media has made the voice of the critic much louder than the voice of the advocate, and it's effectively... Uh, distributed democracy right across the community. So even though people might have been living in a a sort of age of naivety previously uh, in a lot of countries with huge populations, that's all changed. And so head office or the capital, Beijing or Moscow or, or wherever it might be, they can no longer ignore the voice of the people and therefore prosperity really matters.
0: So can you talk a little bit more about how you've seen China evolve over over all those years? You know, it seems to me like the party is doing a pretty good job at using these new media to extend and tighten the party's grip on power. And of course, you know, you first went to China during the optimistic days, right? Right after the, the opening to China at the end of the 70s. And then, of course, you know, the Deng Xiaoping period where it was glorious to get rich. Well, Xi Jinping seems to have a little bit of a different Interpretation of that. How do you? How have you seen the party evolve, and 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 what do you make a, about the party's efforts to essentially extinguish human freedom internally and and tighten the party's exclusive grip on power?
2: So when I first went to China, it, it was 1978, 79, and uh, my parents took me. I was the youngest four children. Uh, still am actually <laughs> the youngest four children, <laughs> and uh, we. Um, we went to China in the second ever Western tour group to go into the country, and I remember going to Beijing, and uh, it was there were no, there was no building over four stories high. Uh, everyone was wearing green suits or blue suits. Uh, there were most people were on push bikes, hardly any cars. Certainly no neon signs, and people would come up to me in Tiananmen Square and squeeze my cheek as a kid because I'd never seen a white person before. Now, fast track to, you know, uh, 2015 when I went there as Treasurer of Australia, Chair of the G20 back in 2014, in, in and uh, I was asked to speak on behalf of the Finance Ministers of the World to the APEC meeting uh, in the Great Hall of the People. And I reflected on the fact that I have seen the most Significant transformation in the most number of people in the history of humanity. We've seen more people come out of poverty because of what's happened in China over the last three decades, four decades, than ever in history. Now, that's a massive statement, and that's something we should all celebrate. But it also, you know, there's two aspects to it for Beijing. The first is they cannot afford to lose momentum. People have had a taste of the pure water, and they want more. And particularly with the one-child policy, which I saw play out uh, in a number of different areas, the significance of the one-child policy is often underestimated in the West. How important that child is to a parent. Of course, every child is important to a parent, but when it's only child, and that child is also expected to take care of you in your old age. Uh, It's a whole different dynamic for China. And what we've seen is the determination of Beijing to keep the momentum going in the economy. Because if they don't, then there will be an insurrection. And don't forget, you know, there have been insurrections against authority in China on numerous occasions over many years. So it's not something that would be new. It's something to be feared.
0: You know, Joe, it seems though that if they are driven by fear, right? You know, fear of not meeting the rising expectations of the population. A lot of their, a lot of their economic and financial and business decisions don't seem to make sense, right? I mean, why, why double down on these inefficient state-owned enterprises? Why crack down, you know, on the tech sector the way they've done, or go after complete uh, areas of the economy involved with tutoring and private education? And now I think healthcare mm-hmm. seems to be like next on the chopping block, you know. So, well, yeah. uh, uh, what, but is, is is this is this because? Uh, they, they prioritize maintaining control, the party does over. Yeah, yeah totally.
2: It's about fear of losing control. So, th- this is the theory according to Joe. Okay. Um, you look at the US, you look at, at Russia, Soviet Union, you look at China, and all three countries had pretty horrendous revolutions, one form or another. And all three countries had horrific civil wars. And at the end of the day, Two of the three countries have said, in order to maintain control, head office, being the capital, must be all-powerful, must be all-powerful. We have to control, otherwise we lose control. Whereas the US has the fundamentals of its constitution and its institutions that ensures that at the end of the day, no matter what control is exerted by the so-called deep state or by Washington, D.C., at the end of the day, so many Americans feel that they've got the Constitution on their side. They've got the judicial system on their side. And therefore, there isn't the same power and impact in a resistance movement that there might be in China or Russia. Yeah, that's so a, fast track. Too, yeah. Sorry, go on. No,
0: I was going to say that's, that's a, a great insight, I think. You know, I, I I do I do think they are driven by... By fear and and uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and and but also it's tied to this aspiration externally as well. So you know what we're seeing even even really since the beginning of COVID is a much more aggressive party internationally as well. I mean, you could I sure. think when you see the repression in Hong Kong and you know how what they what they've been doing on the Himalayan frontier and the South China Sea and the intimidation right. toward Taiwan and and then the massive you know the massive campaigns of. Of, uh, of 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 uh, industrial espionage and cyber attacks, the economic coercion on Australia, right? So, so do, how do you see the party's external, increasingly aggressive stance connected, right, to these internal fears and and what they're trying to achieve inside of
2: China? It's pride. It, yeah. it, it's about face. The, 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 they can't be a second tier, a second tier international player, and want to be the premier authority within their country. Because as their country opens up and internationalises, you don't want the people to drift off and think there's a greater power than Beijing or a greater power in particular than the Communist Party, which are interchangeable with with the Beijing that I'm using. So, uh, you know, it's so much is about not embarrassing, embarrassing the president or embarrassing the Communist Party or embarrassing China. And... China just sees this as a return to what they were in the 14th and 15th century, that they had this period where they weren't respected, uh, that they they were derided for the colour of their skin or for their culture, and they see themselves as coming back. Um, to, to get to specifics, I mean, you know, I, I, I give a little bit of ground here because... Uh, you know, you look at the United States and when it was threatened by Soviet missiles going into Cuba, uh, the Chinese see the South China Sea the same way. 80% of their trade goes through the South China Sea and a vast chunk of it is, 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 is uh, on Chinese vessels. Now, they look at Japan and how Japan was basically, uh, you know, starved of critical uh, um, minerals and, 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 and critical supplies in the lead-up to World War II. And they say, we don't want to be in that position. We want to guarantee our supply chains. And therefore, they're more aggressive in the South China Sea. And they say, South China Sea. If it were America, it would be this, you know the, the, the American Sea or the US Sea or whatever the equivalent, right? But they're saying, well, we want want to protect our supply chains. And the reflection on on prosperity is illustrated best by the fact that they are waging a diplomatic and trade war against Australia. And yet our trade with China has increased. And that's because even though they might put a 212% tariff on our wine, they are increasing the purchase of our iron So Australia either has the largest or second largest trade surplus in the world with China, which is extraordinary. And, of course, they're, 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 you know our third biggest export to China is coal. And even though they left the ships off China trying to punish us for our diplomatic positions in relation to COVID and a range of other things, they're still importing it because at the end of the day, the Chinese people cannot go without electricity. They cannot go without energy and they have blackouts in China as a result of their, you know, part of their, of their punitive measures against Australia. The so they've turned the corner. So that's why prosperity matters more than some of the diplomatic rhetoric.
0: So, you know, the, the problem, of course, with China's you know, land grabs, so to speak, in the South China Sea, it is, it is the, the area of the ocean through which one third of the world's surface trade moves. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, and what do you think the prospects are of, of convincing Chinese Communist Party leadership over time? Hey, you can have enough of your China dream without pursuing it at others' expense. And I think it's pretty clear what they're doing with the weaponization of those islands, that it's meant to intimidate, right? To intimidate the smaller sure. countries in the region uh, and to create essentially an exclusionary area of primacy, right? Across the Indo-Pacific and of course this this is what's affecting I think australia's calculation of security and and concerns about security what do, What are the prospects of convincing Xi Jinping we're not nobody wants to keep the Chinese people down. in fact, you know it has been the West that that has jump started and sustained as you mentioned you know the, the the largest movement of people out of poverty into the middle class in history
2: Well, if I may be so bold as to 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 say this that. It shouldn't surprise us that there's a China first policy because it wasn't that long be- when the United States said, you know, USA first. In fact, it was just a couple of years. And, yeah, and- what, I,
0: what, I, what I would say, Joe, I, I would just reject the moral equivalency there and say, at whose expense was America first, Well, well right? was quite you know, true. Yeah, but
2: it, but yeah. it was Ameri- in that instance, America said, look, we're putting our people first because we've made sacrifices for the rest of the world for so long. I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, thank God for the United States of America. That's, you know, anyone that loves freedom and democracy and is precious about the destiny of their family, thank God for the United States of America. But the rhetoric is used by China to say, well, we're putting our people first. We've got one and a half billion people. We've still got, and they still describe themselves as a developing country, a developing country. Uh, And they've got massive social talent. I mean, they've got the biggest demographic bubble in the history of humanity with the one child policy. Yeah. And you know, if I if I can tell a little story, HR, when I when I um like, you know, when I was treasurer and went to Shanghai, I met with the mayor of Shanghai. And this is, you know, one of the one of the trips. And and it wasn't long after that ended the WTO, WTO. And um and uh he said to me, he said, you know what do you think of Shanghai? I said, it's a huge city. What is it, 25 million people? He said, oh, yes. He said, going to get much, much bigger. I said, why? And he said, because all of these people are leaving their farms, their one-acre farms in central and western China, and they're moving to the coast. I said, oh, my God, where are you going to put them? He said, well, we have 13 satellite cities around Shanghai. And I said, if they been built? He said, oh, yes, they're already 3 million each. He said, we're expecting another 100 million people to come into Shanghai. I mean, the scale is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And so they're dealing, what we fail to understand is the internal pressures in China that are being felt by Beijing and are a threat to Beijing. So it needs to, you know, like most politicians I've ever been involved with, when you've got internal unrest, you create a common enemy. That's what you do. And you point over there and say, they're the enemy, let's go after them. And, and you, you might even make them far worse than what they really are. But, it, but it's a common problem. Uh, it's, it's a common tool, I should say, in politics. And I don't think it's any different with China. They're turning around and saying the West is threatening us So we need to be united. We need to be disciplined. We need to crack down on online education. We need to control uh, social media. We need to close down cryptocurrencies because if we don't retain control, the enemy over there is going to beat us. And America's most potent weapon is its soft diplomacy. It goes from Hollywood to music to so much in between. It's it's whole message of freedom, and Chinese love that message. They love it, and they're embracing it, and that represents a threat to Beijing.
0: So, can we talk a little bit about about the perception of Chinese Communist Party leadership based on what you're mentioning? Right, this you know, this this uh, this accelerated economic growth, right? And and now I think. Uh, a race by the party to try to surpass the United States and again, to, you know, to use Xi Jinping's words, to take center stage in the world. To what degree has this race on the part of the, the Chinese Communist Party in particular built frailties into the system? And I'm, I'm thinking about you know the Evergrande and real estate crisis cool. and the degree to which they are over leveraged uh the, the the demographic crisis that's coming such that you know china may grow older before it gets richer and yes yes and yes. Uh, and, and you know there are a sort of as you know many people have been predicting the collapse of this and, and saying it looks like a ponzi scheme to them for many years but you understand the economy and, and the economic and financial dimension better than just about anybody i know what do you think about the strength of the chinese communist party our, our approach to the economic uh, growth and development is it sustainable uh, what what are, what are, what do you what you, was your prediction going forward here
2: Look, the chinese economy it's kind of extraordinary for an economy so large to have a sustainable growth rate of six percent is extraordinary yeah. and it's only sustainable if they can get uh you know the labor that is going to deliver it so what we've seen is a transition in the Chinese economy from an export economy to a consumption economy and and what they've tried to do is they've maintained exports but they're really trying to increase the consumption of, of the everyday Chinese household. So, in the US and Australia, two thirds of economic growth comes from household consumption increasing every year. And in the US, it's credit card fueled, right? I mean, it's, 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 and it's a, to a certain degree in Australia as well. Uh, whereas in China, it's been fueled by the money they earn. And what they've been doing is saving. And because they're pretty unsophisticated investors, they've been putting it into real estate. There's also been that transition. So, for example, in Shanghai, if someone had a block of land, the government would come to them and say, if we take your block of land and we build apartments, we'll give you three apartments. You can live in one and rent out two, and that can be your income. And that is common across vast parts of China. So all of those factors coming together, Uh, the fact that it's still an unsophisticated investment market. The Shanghai Stock Exchange is effectively a casino by a different name. They still are learning how capitalism works and how the flow of capital works. And Beijing still thinks that if they lose control of the flow of capital, then they lose control of the economy. And that's what scares them, losing control of the Chinese economy, because it comes back to prosperity. If they lose control of the economy... They can't cope with a recession. United States, all the Western countries, we've had recessions, multiple recessions. China can't cope with a recession uh, because they've got no social safety. net. So therefore, they need to keep moving forward and change their economy along the way. And they haven't got time to have the uh, boom and bust of individual industries that the U S has had over many years and Australia and the Western economies have had, they've got to control that boom and bust. Um, w- w- yes. The growth of China is fully sustainable because you've seen the emergence of the most massive middle-class ever in the history of humanity. And that middle-class is going to drive consumption. It's going to drive economic growth. The stress uh, well, unquestionably, the calcification of the trade pipelines with the rest of the world. Uh, if the rest of the world stops buying from China, that's a disaster for China. Uh, in fact, you know, despite all the rhetoric about the US and China, China is still, by a fair margin, the biggest goods exporter to the United States. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's the third biggest trading partner of the US after Canada and Mexico, um, and the U.S. has increased its purchase, and it's, and it's the I think, the third biggest uh, export market for U.S. goods. So I think the trade train has left the station, and you can't wind it back because everyone will suffer. So the current tariffs that are in place, really, they're not particularly meaningful. They're just a tax on the American people, and the sooner President Biden gets rid of that rubbish, the better. But... The question is, how do we force Chinese companies to change? I mean, I remember meeting with the head of a state-owned enterprise. He had 500,000 employees and he wanted to come to Australia to look at an investment opportunity. And I said, so, uh, boldly, what do you get paid? And he said, $50,000 a year. I said, you have 500,000 employees and you're the chairman of the company. He said, yes, and he said, I need the permission of Beijing to travel outside the United States more than once a year. Outside of China, I'm sorry, uh, uh, more than once a year. It, 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 it just seemed absurd for such a large company. And for the West, it's an opportunity because our great strength is our companies, our corporate experience. And if we send it into battle in, in some of these developing nations, in economies in these developing nations and start to have our very best companies actively participating in their economies rather than seeing them as a risk, we de-risk their activity. Then we're going to beat Chinese SOEs every single day because we're just better at doing what we do from a vast amount of experience.
0: So how about the experience that so many companies have had? When I was national security advisor, I used to have CEOs, come to me all the time and say, president, CEOs of major companies and say, let me tell you how I'm getting screwed in China, but don't tell anybody I told you, right? Because they're all afraid of losing their market share. And the story invariably had something to do with really the forced, uh, the forced transfer of intellectual property and know-how and technology uh, to a, you know, to a Chinese company uh, which then appropriated that technology, enjoyed some tremendous subsidies from the government. uh, And then, Produced those goods at artificially low prices. That company is then progressively squeezed out of the Chinese market. But then those goods are also dumped on the international market uh, in a way that drives that company market share down, and then many of these companies out of business. Right? I mean, there's so many examples of this. With you know, I mean, solar panels are often used, but you can yeah. also see it in battery manufacturing these days, uh, for example. So. Uh, what what about the unfair trade and economic practices? walray I guess I would say Joe is another example, right? Where you've got Cisco technology stolen, sixty billion dollars of subsidies, right? <laughs> and then and then and then uh, you know then, then making offers that that developing countries can't refuse, right? To to give them control of their communications infrastructure. So what do we do about that, Joe? I mean, in terms of competing effectively.
2: Well, make sure that, the you know, where possible, that the rule of law applies. So, um, you know, I mean, they're not the first country to steal intellectual property. I mean, there are countries on this, on, on this Zoom call that uh, have both stolen intellectual property from other countries, right? And, you know, you can't control all the components of your country. Having said that, it seems as though Beijing turns a blind eye to the theft of certain intellectual property. Um, well, they so, do it.
0: They actually, Joe, they actually do it themselves. Yeah, yeah. With, well, with, with Advanced Persistent Threat 10, an organization designed to do it that was just sanctioned by the United States, Australia, and I think 10 other countries. Um, so uh, HR, just,
2: that's just a great example for the people <laughs> watching this podcast of <laughs> the diplomat being me and you being the National Security Advisor <laughs> in general, right? You're just calling it as you see it. I'm trying to be diplomatic. Here, you're right, okay? There is theft and organised theft and, and, and government-sanctioned theft of intellectual property. So what's the best thing to do? Well, it comes back to face. And so when China comes into organisations and and international agreements, be the WTO or anyone else, uh, then you've got the sanction of the system to be able to apply. And that's as good as it gets. So under President Trump, it was reprehensible that the US was opposing the appointment of people to the appeals court of the WTO. I mean, because what what, what what other mechanisms do you have available? Truly do you have available? Other than to go through a legal process, the same process that no, it could, it could it could it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> well, it, it could have been a lot worse. worse. Well yeah, I mean I, I, I was I think I think because the United
0: States felt that it, the adjudication process, the appeals process had been co-opted by China. I think so that well, that was the concern. That's,
2: it, that's a legitimate concern, but let's fix it. Let's not just ignore yeah. it and pretend it'll go away. Right. It's a bit like the World Health Organization and 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 you know, finding out the roots of COVID nineteen. Australia was at the forefront of that. And, yeah. you know, that, that's why China's been punishing us so right. aggressively right. on the trade front. Because yeah. we're yeah. saying, actually, we don't think the World Health Organization is credible in trying to find the, the real root causes of COVID-19. And we're right. But, you know, it just takes concerted international pressure. And it comes back to the point, HR, that you've made so often. America's great advantage is its allies. It has partners, it has allies, and, and that's historic, but also a shared belief in freedom and democracy and, 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 and enterprise and so on. China doesn't have allies. It has, it has people that's it's bullied, it's people, countries that it's bought, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really have anyone that is a genuine ally of, of China. And so the US can win, but it's got to harness all the energy and all the support of its allies. And now I think it's starting to do that. Hey, Joe, and I know you've got
0: some ideas, and actually you're acting on this in ways to help make us more competitive from an economic and a financial perspective. But I wonder if you could just maybe summarize the experience of Australia across across many years now dealing with the coercive power of the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm thinking in particular. This pernicious campaign of co-option, coercion, and concealment—right, co-opt you with it, with uh, with the the lure of profits associated with access to the Chinese market or with Chinese yeah. investment—and yeah. then once you're in, right, use that for coercive purposes. That's usually accompanied by an effort to buy off elites and a very sustained and and sophisticated, increasingly sophisticated information warfare campaign as well. And Australia was the first to kind of pull the curtain back on this. I'm thinking of John Garnos. Study the legislation in in China uh, that that resulted uh, from the, the really exposing this kind of pernicious campaign, and now of course you know you're dealing with this this campaign of of, of economic coercion. So uh, you know, Joe, how did how did that happen in Australia? It seems like it has a lot of bipartisan support, right? I mean, I'm just thinking of of Tony Abbott's speech he just gave recently in Taiwan, where he he talked about weaponized trade against Australia, uh, and then said that that uh, you know, China had tried to make Australia a tributary state and, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and failed, right? And so you have Scott Morrison, who's taking a tough stance. Now you have Tony Abbott. I mean, it seems like Australia's come around to the
2: nature of the competition. Well, we haven't changed. China changed. Uh, so when I was the treasurer of Australia in 2015, we signed a free trade agreement with China. Now, the most contentious free trade agreement when I was in Parliament for the 20 years I was in Parliament, the most contentious free trade agreement was with the United States. It nearly didn't get through the Parliament, and it wasn't bipartisan until the very end. But the free trade agreement with China uh, was seen as a mutual opportunity to grow. President Xi was, you know, ever the diplomat. Uh, during the G20, which we chaired in 2014, he came to Australia for the G20, as did Vladimir Putin, by the way, which is sharp contrast to, to Italy recently. And, um, and he went down to Tasmania and he said, it's the only state I haven't been to in, in, in Australia. I've been to every other state. Uh, no prime minister's ever visited, you know, all of China, right, all, the, all, all, all of the states of China, so equivalent. So, um, you know, he, he was a diplomat about it. And there was an energy around the relationship between China and Australia based on mutual respect and uh, and so on. But what happened was we always spoke up about human rights abuses. I mean, nothing changed. We always did. And we'd do it behind the scenes and at times we'd do it very publicly when needed to, to be said. But then China suddenly became more aggressive and stopped the, the behind-the-scenes communication between ministers. I mean... At one stage, Lo Jiwei, the finance minister of China, was one of my closest finance minister friends. Uh, he and I uh, worked together to make sure that, you know, Australia had diversified supply of iron ore because the market was crashing. And uh, and and we effectively prevented Fortescue and a number of other iron ore companies from potentially falling under. Because he wanted diversified supply. I wanted to save jobs in Australia. Um and there are multiple cases, you know, uh, uh, Lo Ji Wei said to me, he said he needed to impose a temporary tariff on our coal. And when I said, but we're about to sign a free trade agreement to abolish those tariffs, he said, I've got to deal with some domestic issues. So let me deal with domestic issues and then we get to abolish the tariff. And there was, you know, that's the interchange that keeps the wheels turning, that, that recognises on the other side, you have political challenges and they do in China as we do in Australia. But what happened was they closed communication. they started to bully us, and that was a mistake because Australians just don't get bullied. We just don't accept it. It just does not work. I mean uh, coming from a convict history where you know the authority of 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 the uh, of the wardens was despised, uh, Australians don't like being pushed around and uh, and and so whether it was China or anyone else, we weren't going to buy it. And we, the more we pushed back, the more they resisted, and it deteriorated. Can it come back? I don't know. I I just don't know how. Um, I I I don't know how. If I can just give you one little story, when the Malaysian plane uh, went into the sea in the Indian Ocean, yeah. there was a lot of Chinese uh, on the plane, and uh, you know it was a mystery and. It was our zone of responsibility. And no one really had charted the Indian Ocean. I mean, it's really extraordinary. We, were, we sent every ship we could, naval ship, everything else, out into the Indian Ocean to try and find that Malaysian plane. And President Xi was under enormous domestic pressure because families had lost their only child. And uh, or a mother and a child. And even though it has a population of one and a half billion, it was those 40, 50 families that really galvanized the Chinese population. And President Xi was ringing us every few days, every few weeks, desperate to get more information about what had happened. And you can understand that. But it was a reflection of the pressure that he was under domestically. Uh, or another case example, you remember when, when there was a poisoned infant formula in China, and that was probably two decades ago. The Chinese people have not forgotten that at all. I mean, they still, when they land in Australia, any Chinese ships, they, they're carrying boxes and boxes of infant formula back onto the ship or onto the plane, uh, taking it back for their children. And you know, so there is an element of distrust in China of their leadership that Beijing is fully aware of and is cognizant of. But at the same time, they don't want the you know to suffer the embarrassment of other countries helping. And how we manage that is very difficult. It's really about a personality management rather than a diplomatic management.
0: You know, uh, there are a lot of things we we, you see uh, the United States doing to respond uh, to Chinese economic aggression, industrial espionage, this, the the economic and financial aspects of the of the competition. A lot of it's defensive, right? Like the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or delisting, or or initiating the delisting process for Chinese companies that don't meet the transparency and reporting requirements to list on on our exchanges. But there, there also has been a movement towards some economic statecraft, even some industrial policy, right? To invest in critical technologies and supply chains that have important economic influence and, 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 and also uh and security implications like rare earths and battery manufacturing and and of course what everybody's focused on these days are semiconductors and the shortage yes. associated with it. But you have some ideas, you know, that we were discussing earlier about about uh, how, to, how to maximize our competitive advantages, our economic and our financial advantages. Can you describe for our viewers what you're involved with today and, and the potential you know, for, for us to compete effectively with China's you know, uh, you know, statist mercantilist model?
2: Yeah, yeah, look, it, it's a really good question. So the supply chains are everything. And, and I think during COVID, it's been a wake up call to a number of countries how, exposed they are on the supply chain side. I mean, for example, you know, under American law, you know, this a, a soldier has to wear a uniform or the uniform has to be made in America that the soldier wears. But if they're injured, uh, the antibiotic, all the ingredients in the antibiotic come from China and India. So they're injecting China and India antibiotic into their bodies, but they have to wear an American uniform. It doesn't make sense, right? So it's a, it's a reality check about supply chains now. And you're absolutely right. We were the first to ring the bell on Huawei and 5G. We copped a shellacking from China about that. The US got there. Canada's still mixing around, the UK and others. But the bottom line is that it's untenable over the longer term to have Huawei as the chief supplier of technology into the 5G network. So when I was ambassador, we signed a MOU with Japan and the United States and said, okay, we're going to find a way to invest in infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific region, which is the fastest growing region in the world. Uh, And we're going to offer an alternative to Belt and Road. Um, Now, it was slightly uncoordinated because we didn't have, you know, the pot of money. Each individual country had its own agency. So uh, when I was approached by Digicel, which is the biggest telecommunications company in the Pacific, and they said that they were in, you know, very interested in selling, that had approaches from a number of parties, uh, in, and, and they identified the parties to me, and my immediate view was that's not in the best interest of the US, Australia, and Japan. So uh, I uh, found a buyer in Australia, and the buyer engaged with the government, And the government for the $1.8 billion price tag has uh, financially supported the acquisition by an Australian company of 100% of the equity in Digicel, uh, which is the biggest telco in Papua New Guinea and five other countries in the region. Now, it's a great deal because the Australian government borrows at 0%, lends at 3% to 4%, so taxpayers don't lose. Australia provides foreign aid into those countries and therefore can do an immediate swap to help the country, the company take its money out and no cost to the Australian government and no cost to the company. And then the third factor is it's an Australian company going into the region and investing in the region and showing that we are serious about being players in the region. This is the first B3W type of deal in the world. So, President Biden at the G7 talked about B3W. This is the real B3W in the world and the first of its kind for 1.8 billion US. There are other opportunities in ports, in railways, in telcos, whether it be in the Caribbean or be it in in South America or be it in Africa. What, What we need to do is de risk the opportunity for our companies to go into these countries and invest in the growth of their economies. And we will beat any competition every day that is controlled by governments. And, and that's effectively what Belt and Road is. It's a, it's a government-funded, government-run program to operate in another country, and there's little experience of the operators in doing it. And, and it's had some very bad outcomes. It comes with strings,
0: right? And if those strings yeah, mean... Yeah. You know, you, you can't criticize the Chinese government, or they can call back all your, you know, all your debt well, yeah, immediately. China. And and, uh, and so I, I think that I, I'm sensing, you know, in in Oceania, across the Indo Pacific region, among the ASEAN countries, a real sense that this is you know, this is not a competition, right, between you know Washington and and Canberra versus you know versus China. This is actually no. this is really a choice that they face between sovereignty and servitude. So I think this kind of an approach that you're advocating and what what the United States is trying to do now with the development fi- infrastructure yeah, finance corporation yeah. and so forth uh, to de-risk these investments and to provide alternatives that actually turn a profit as well. Correct. I mean, I, I, th- I think that's the way for us to
2: compete. Yes, e- exactly right. That's what we're good at. Yeah. And instead of t- trying to be what another country might be, it's really important that we do what we do well and take it to the rest of the world. I mean, Again, that's what American culture has done so well over such a long period of time. And, you know, it's what Britain did very well, and France and others. I mean, of course, they had, you know, pretty, pretty horrific imperial histories, but, um, but we don't need to invade. We can, we can just share the best of our culture and the best of our experience and, and help economies to grow and create prosperity. Well, speaking of France... <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, did I mention France? And, didn't and, and, I didn't mention France. I'm sorry. Oh, and God. the
0: AUKUS agreement. Yeah. So what's uh, you know, there's been a lot a lot of consternation about that. But you know, I, you know, I I don't think any of these arrangements should be exclusive. Certainly, right? And could could, what, could you share with our viewers your assessment of the AUKUS agreement how it came about and 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 what you think about that uh, you know that that agreement as well as uh, as well as some other uh, international a cooperation that's ongoing, like the quad format.
2: So the Australia, UK and US agreement, as I understand it, uh, came out of a discussion between the UK and Australia. And it was based on the fact that Australia's wanted to have conventional submarines. So when I was on the national security committee, we didn't even contemplate nuclear powered submarines uh, because really the US was the only one that could supply. And the US said no. Um, and consistently said no. Uh, and we thought the politics of it in Australia were just too, too, too acute. We wouldn't be able to, to do it. So because we've got vast oceans to cover, we have to stretch out like a limo the, a, an existing conventional submarine. And as you know, HR, a submarine the most complicated piece of machinery humanity has ever built. And uh, so stretching it out is no mean feat. And the French had the best propulsion system. They had the best tender. We had Americans on it. We have interchangeable weapon systems and and so on with the Americans. So it's, you know, the technology is is very much US, Australia. And look, the the French were judged to be the best. But for various reasons, they weren't able to deliver what was promised. And it became patently obvious as our, our submarine fleet is aging that unless we move quickly to have an alternative that could travel vast distances, uh, then we would be really exposed. And, uh, you know, the, the, U, the UK has this two-class submarine, which is nuclear-powered, which goes faster and further, a nuclear power submarine than a conventional. And the US, you know, wanted to, w- wanted to be a part of it as well if there was going to be this, this partnership. And, uh, you know, there's quite an ugly political bun fight between France and Australia uh, about timing and there are different motivations. Uh, The bottom line is, uh, you know, it was well reported that there were concerns in Australia, publicly reported in the media, well into the lead up to all this, uh, that there were concerns that the the submarine deal might fall over because it, it wasn't able to be fulfilled. Now, you know, the fact is France is an essential partner uh, in, in the world, in the region. I mean, you know, you, you think back to what, you know, when Churchill met with Stalin and Roosevelt, how far he had to go to protect the interests of France in Germany in, 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 at the end of World War II. And, you know, there's a deep history of Australia. France. I mean, we've got 70,000 Australians buried in the soil in France from World War I, 70,000. So, yes, we care about France. To, to sacrifice 70,000 of our young men and women in World War One, we feel passionately about France. And they should feel passionately about us as well. And, and so we have got to get over this in current imbroglio and just move on and find the best way to ensure that we don't lose another 70,000. Well, France doesn't lose another 300,000. at some horrific war in the future. Um, and, you know, the fact is that, that all of our systems, as you know, are heavily integrated with the United States. I mean, Australia has military personnel in 32 US states today, right? It's not, most people don't know about it. We're the only country that has fought side by side with the United States in every single major battle for 101 years. No other country has been there in every single fight, fighting side by side with America. So there's no question about where our loyalties lie. It's just we've also got to make, you know, given the rise of China and increasing threats in the region, we need to make the best decisions for our nation's future and to protect our interests, and that's what happened with AUKUS. And I hope, I hope that, that we move on from it. As for the Quad, uh, you know, America, you know, Australia, India, Japan and the United States. I mean, the Chinese see it as some sort of containment strategy, but, it, but it's, you know, they're four democracies, four freedom-loving democracies that also have a shared interest in making sure that the sea lanes are open, that we have free trade and fair trade. I mean, it's, there's still a way to go with some of the countries in, in terms of free trade, but we have fair trade, we share common interests, we want to grow the region. And, and, and frankly, uh, they're incredibly important partnerships Particularly India. I mean, India's, you know, and again, it's Chinese unnecessary Chinese provocation that has pushed India into a spot where they're saying, you know, you're supporting Pakistan on one border, you're you you you, you you're having armed fist fights with us on another border. Where do we turn? Where right. do we turn? Yeah, you know, yeah. that's where India turned, and and you know, thank God they did, frankly.
0: Yeah, we all need India to succeed, right? A small problem oh, totally. in India is a big problem for the world, <laughs> whether it's climate change yeah. or energy security or health security or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, Joe, I'd like to ask you about the United States now, right? I mean, you're you know you you've been a tremendous ally and a leader who's emphasized our relationship over the years, and you've witnessed us right go through the the traumas of recent years from a, you know from a pandemic to a recession to the social divisions. Uh, and, and violence associated with uh, George Floyd's murder in the aftermath, the vitriolic partisanship uh, that you see uh, in, in our country you know, culminating on the assault on our capital. And and uh, and then you've seen this this humiliating withdrawal from from, from Afghanistan. Right. It's, it's been a rough couple of years. What's your assessment of, of where we are as a country these days? What are your greatest concerns and and, and how do you see the future of, of our country?
2: Well, the United States is the greatest force for freedom in the history of humanity. That's the third time I've used that term, but the history (laughs) of humanity, it is. It really is. It's just, you know, the American people are selfless, are um, compassionate, uh, you know, they're, they're, I mean, they're they're advocates for the things that make us a, a, a richer world. And if the United States hadn't had courage, beyond belief at various times uh, and uh, hadn't had the self-belief and confidence to go where other nations probably wouldn't have had the guts to go, then the world would be a much darker place. And quite frankly, to all those self-doubting Americans out there, as an outsider, I say to you, start to believe in yourself again. You, You have a great country and the United States uh, will continue to be the flag bearer for freedom and democracy and, and, and you know, and, and community. It will continue to be that. But it has to, at some point, get back to believing in itself. Now, you know, there are moments of self-doubt. And I think part of that is reflected in, you know, so many changes in the world. Uh, social media where, you know, uh, it, it's a dark place for a lot. It's not a, a, a you know, it's not the town hall that the, 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 the boffins talk about. It's, it's a pretty dark place for a lot of people. Um, and the unrelenting criticism of government and institutions and all institutions have come under attack around the world, whether it be the church or the judiciary or, or you know, the, the Congress equivalent, they have all been under attack, and in, in, certainly in the in, in the last half of the twentieth century and beyond. But you know, America just has this capacity to bounce back. It's the most innovative nation in the world, in terms of scale. China might be bigger, um, but you know, every little town in America has an innovator. Every little town has the capacity to deliver a, a Henry Ford or. Or or, 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 you know, someone that is going to change the arts or change sport or change, uh, you know, uh, capitalism or some deep thinker or great writer. Every little town in America has that innovative spirit that rewards it. And so I, I genuinely believe America's greatest days are ahead of it, not behind it, ahead of it. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it all. You know, i, I, I spent a bit of time with President Trump. I, I knew President Obama from chairing the G20. I, um, You know, I think President Trump was the safety valve that needed to let off a lot of steam. And, um, you know, I've got a few theories on that, but, 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 but just continue to believe in yourselves. That's all I'm saying. It's a free tip. Well, that's,
0: that's a great, that's a great message. I'm often accused of being the, the optimist in residence, you know, at the, no, 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 but I, no. I, sh- I share your optimism, Joe, yeah, yeah. But, but we have a lot of work to do. I, we don't want to be Pollyannish about it, obviously, but it, I really appreciate that message. I'd like to ask you about another area that might you know need some improvement and attention. And that's, uh that's rugby in, in the, in the U S you and I saw each other last month <laughs> at the, uh, what was st- started as the, as the army Navy game in which, you know, West Point had a righteous victory over over Annapolis in the opener, but then we watched the All Blacks just dismantle uh, Team USA, right, with uh, scoring over 100 points, okay? So this might be the most important question I'm asking, but what is your advice for USA rugby? What can we do to get back to the great old days, right, when the only two times rugby was played in the Olympics in the 1930s, you know, the United States came away with a gold medal, right? We're far from that these days. What... What should, what should USA Rugby do, Joe?
2: Well, I know you were there for those games of the 30s, HR. I, 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 was, I wasn't even a, a in my grandfather's and grandmother's eyes. But, um, you know, you can't – look, I love my rugby. I just – I apologize to anyone that's offended, but by God, I, I live and breathe it. And, you know, it was only getting knocked out for the third time. Which probably caused irreparable damage that uh, that prevented me from lacing well, only, up. Only against... only three times, Joe. Only three, yeah, six, yeah, when yeah. no, no. <laughs> It brings on early dementia, but um, <laughs> which obviously I'm showing. But the the uh, look, you know, you've got the population, you've got the money. Um, it's about getting the best skills in, like everything. You know, if you have the best skills and the best coaches and you have, you know, strong competition, then you'll get better and better. And, you know, I feel, I feel I'm feel a little bit of a, a trader to Australia, but I've been roped into supporting, uh, you know, the Washington USA bid for the... Well, I, to I talked practice. to Chris. I talked to Chris just earlier today. Yeah, yeah. And they're roping <laughs> me in. And the first thing they said is, how's Australia's bid going? I said, I'm not a trader. Like, I'm like Mata Hari. It's like, <laughs> cut it out. So... Anyway, I mean, look, the USA bounces back, and it does. It just needs, you know, a bit of competition and, and, and a bit of discipline, and away you go. I mean, it's not as if you haven't got the brawn and the, and the skills to be able to do it, you know. And like everything, the USA applies itself, dedicates itself to it. It can do it. Not to beat us, to beat New Zealand. That's what we all want. We want to beat New Zealand. And England. Oh, my God.
0: I know, yeah. Well, crazy. And the Springboks, the spring who continue to surprise uh, no. are doing extremely well. I mean, Argenti- know, Argenti- Argentina, Argentina looks good again, you know. I, so I, I think... You know, uh, it's
2: pretty amazing. The story about the South African Springboks, they had a, you know, the, the greatest team, and it was a big driver, believe it or not, in the breakdown of apartheid. Sure. Because yeah. they, were, they were denied the right to play against all the teams in the world, and that's the one thing that the Afrikaners dis. Desp- you know, was the fact the rest of the world wouldn't play rugby against their precious team during, uh, you know, those horrific years. And it it, it actually opened up. And then New Zealand, uh, South Africa won the Rugby World Cup. And, you know, but then South Africa again took the decision that 50% of the team had to be black. Now, everyone thought that was the end of South Africa. Uh, How could they suddenly build up a pool of talent that could compete, you know, and uh, given it was such a white man, Africana sport. And then South Africa won the the last world cup. Now uh, led by a black man. And I tell you, for me, it was a really emotional moment. I think I, I agree with me. Just- I
0: felt the same way. I was in Yokohama uh, for the, you know, for the, uh, for the world cup. Right, you know, Latin, yeah, for yeah. for this past World Cup, it was phenomenal. I mean, they played played their hearts out. You know, the and, you know, beating, and, but, beating beating the beating the Welsh was tough, and then and then beating England, who had just beaten the All Blacks.
2: Yeah, it was, it, but it was just a great story. Yeah, that no great. matter how tough it is in your world, in your economy, in your country, and whatever it is, you can have over- a gorgeous odds if you just are driven, you work hard, and you apply yourself, and you're fearless. And and they did. You know, that sport reveals character, as they say. Absolutely, that's what it does.
0: That's right. And I think I think rugby is a perfect metaphor for many aspects of life. And and uh, Joe, hey, I, I I can't I can't thank you enough. So great to see you, uh, on behalf of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds important to building a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come.
2: Well, HR, thank you to you. Thank you for your service, not only to your nation, but also to my nation, mate. I mean, you know, you've, you've served a lot of people beyond the United States and I think that's properly recognised. And also the Hoover Institution, what a, what a revered institution it is. And uh, thank you so much for all
1: that you guys have done and, and I look forward to the future. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.